Good afternoon, everybody. This is Brandon Busteed. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. And I'm delighted to have uh, a longtime friend, Jeff Slingo, New York Times bestselling author uh, and a rather renowned uh, expert on higher education today. We're going to be talking about everybody's favorite subject, college admissions. So, uh, Jeff, first, thanks for carving out some time. I've seen maybe 32 webinars that you've done in the last week alone, so I'm grateful that you were able to, to, to get this going, so thank you. Uh, I think this is our, our, our new life, right, Brandon? Uh, uh, webinars from home, webcasts from home, LinkedIn Live. So it's absolutely great to, to be with you. Uh, you know, the thing about this new life, of course, is that we, we tend to have a, a lot of openings to do things like this because we don't have to get on a plane to, to go somewhere. That's right. Yeah, we were, we were just saying neither, neither one of us uh, miss flying around on airplanes and we both do it a lot in our, in our typical lives. And uh, that was actually where, where you and I had one of our first big bonding moments was a 16-hour was a flight where we were uh, next to each other on the way to Doha for the World Innovation Summit on Education. So, uh, you know, those were never fun flights, but uh, this was much easier to coordinate um, and didn't involve all the travel. So, um, so I'd love to have you start. Uh, I know you've got a new book coming out this fall. This will be your third book. Uh, you're a New York Times bestseller. I'm sure this one is going to add to that, uh, to that list. Tell us what it's about. Give us a little background on, uh, on some of the things that uh, people might see in that when they pick it up. Um, yeah, so it's called uh, Who Gets In and Why? Uh, a Year Inside College Admissions to be published by uh, Simon & Schuster. Uh, September 15th, it comes out, but you can pre-order it now. Um, and in the book, I basically follow the admissions cycle through an entire year. So I got inside the process at, at three institutions, a big public flagship, that being the University of, Wisconsin, uh, of Washington in Seattle, uh, a small liberal arts college being Davidson College, and a, and a major private research university being Emory uh, University in, uh, in Atlanta. In addition to that, I also followed two other groups of people that really are critical, obviously, in the admissions process, that is students themselves. So I followed a group of, of almost about two dozen high school seniors from all over the country, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different kind of academic interests, and they were applying to all different types of schools. I ended up really profiling three and following three in the book, and then really looked at kind of what has been often described as the, uh, you know, the admissions industrial complex, right? That's if, if any of uh, our listeners and viewers today go to NACAC, the big, you know, National Association of College Admissions Officers Conference every fall, you know, it's all those uh, entities that are in the big exhibit hall, right? The, right. All the testing uh, services, all the marketing services, you know, everything kind of behind the scenes. And I think, you know, this book is really aimed at um, students and parents and counselors. And I think for most people who you know, don't live this every day like most of us do and, and know kind of how um, higher education works. I think that most people applying to college for the first time really don't realize all the stuff that goes behind the scenes, not only within the admissions office itself, uh, which I try to uncover in this book, but also all these other entities that are really helping colleges pull those different lever levers, whether it's around marketing, whether it's around financial aid, testing, right. whatever it, uh, it might be. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've got a lot of important stuff, but 
how much does the, you know, the recent year of college admission scandals weigh into what you cover in that? I mean, obviously you were, you're talking about institutions that weren't wrapped up in that mess, but does that weigh into the book uh, much at all? It weighs into a, a little bit. There's actually a couple of books coming out on, on the admission scandal on Varsity Blues alone. Um, so I kind of stayed away from that a little bit, but really yeah. where I'm focusing is on the idea that admissions is kind of a meritocracy um, it really never has been. It never will be because there's institutional interests always at play. Uh, you know, admissions is really around the, in the interests of the institutions and the colleges and universities and not necessarily the applicants. And I kind of lay that out um, in pretty stark terms and with a lot of examples from inside the admissions offices. So all these offices let me report on what I saw what I witnessed and what I heard and what I read while I was there, as long as I didn't identify, you know, the applicants that they were reviewing. So it's a, right. in my mind, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, but it's kind of a fascinating look at, at what happens behind those closed doors that, that most applicants never get to see. Yeah, no, I love it. I think just, you know, kind of debunking some of the myths and giving people a better understanding of, you know, the, the complexities behind it. I mean, it is incredibly complex and you're right. There's a lot of institutional interest for, for different reasons. Some, you know, very valid, uh, and others maybe you know uh, the public wouldn't feel uh, so, so so much about. But uh, anyway, definitely looking forward to uh, to reading that. Now, now let's segue to uh, the the new world we're in right now. Uh, back us up a couple months ago. You know, I was giving speeches, and I'm sure you were commenting on this too. You know, the coming age demographic crash that's going to happen around 2025 to 2030, right? Where the the percentage of college-going uh, students, college-age-going students, is going to drop in the U.S. A lot of people talking about that, which is just around the corner. I mean, 2025 is is a flash in higher ed time. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, this this pandemic has hit us, and uh, and the concerns are now very immediately for this coming fall. Several articles in the news in the last couple of weeks predicting that campuses might have a 20% drop in enrollment in the fall. Give us your take on kind of what you think is going to happen for the fall in terms of the overall magnitude here. Well, let me start by saying we don't know, right? Uh, <laughs> so now that I said that, I'll go and proceed to say what I think is going to happen, right? We have the problem right now is that we have no idea what life is going to be like um, in the U.S. or around the world in September, even August. So it's it's hard to really predict. But but what we've been seeing uh, the last couple of days, particularly even the last week, going back to a statement that Mitch Daniels made, and then we had this editorial from the Brown president in the New York Times over the weekend, is that institutions intend and are announcing they intend to open this fall. Now, what that will look like, who knows? But the reason they're doing that is because we're kind of in the midst of admission season right now. You know, tomorrow is May 1st, when the, which is the traditional deadline. Right. Incoming students uh, are when accepted students have to make their deposits. A number of schools push that back to June 1st. But, but what schools really need to show to students and primarily their parents is, hey, we're planning to open in the fall because we want you to make your deposit, right? So it's right. really around trying to get those students um, committed. Uh, and the same thing goes for the students kind of on the, uh, you know, already in, uh, in college, because they want them to make sure they register to, to come back. So it's really around enrollment and retention right now, I think is a lot behind these announcements that we're going to open. Now, what that really means, I don't think anyone knows uh, right. what opening mean. And I, I think we're going to see a couple of different scenarios. I think this is going to be very regionally based. Um, I think it's going to be, are you a rural institution as opposed to a, a urban institution? Do you mostly have commuter students or do you have students from who are mostly residential and live on campus? 
I think we're gonna see some options where they're gonna really reduce the number of students living on campus. Uh, so that means some students might have to do a virtual uh, semester. Uh, I think with commuter institutions, you might see something that we're gonna see in high schools and K through 12 schools in general, where some students come certain days of the week and they stay home on other days of the week. Uh, but most of all, I do not think this is gonna be kind of a normal in-person full enrollment semester no matter where we go. And overall, yeah. I think the numbers will be lower. I think they won't be as low as people are saying. I mean, I think you'll have some people, uh, more people than usual, uh, take a gap year, you know, if they're, if they're a senior in high school now, and they'll, they'll delay that year of starting college. I think you'll have to see other students take a year off who are right. already enrolled. Um, I think my sense right now is more people are saying they're gonna do that that are actually gonna do it at the end of the day, unless there are great alternatives for them. Yeah, and, and so several things. Uh, we got a couple of good questions that have come in. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you both of them now, and maybe you can hit these and then I'll come back to the ones that I have. But uh, Kevin Taylor is interested in your thoughts on, the, on this kind of double impact of the recent NACAC decisions plus COVID, right? So, you know, together it's gonna be a highly competitive uh, college admission cycle, you know, unlike anything we've seen before. And then, you know, we've got a series of school news announcements that are happening. And you just mentioned you saw the, the uh, news from USC uh, going test optional. Uh, uh, Paul McConville, who's on the feed right now, just uh, said University of Oregon just moved admissions decisions to September 1st. Right. Tell me about these trends. Uh, just curious your thoughts on those those questions that are popping up from our audience here. Well, I think it's a, it's a great question about the uh, NACAC, right? So net last year, under pressure from the U.S. Justice Department, uh, NACAC kind of changed their uh, code of, of ethics. It used to be that schools, this May 1st deadline was kind of set in stone, and schools couldn't continue to recruit uh, students after May 1. Uh, and, and that was going to go away anyway, no matter whether there was a coronavirus and, or not. Um, we were going to start to see kind of the breakdown of that traditional admissions calendar. And now we're seeing it even more. Right. I mentioned earlier, hundreds of schools went to June 1st uh, as a deposit deadline. Uh, University yeah. of Oregon yesterday announced they're moving to September 1st. So what I think gonna, we're going to see, not only over the course of the next year, but I think a lot of this stuff is going to end up sticking, is the, kind of all these traditions in, uh, in admissions, the, the, the traditional calendar, the way we marketed it to students, the way we assess them in terms of testing and grades and other things. I think a lot of this is going to be much more, uh, this is going to be much different um, uh, in not only in the coming year, but I think a lot of these different aspects of how admissions is changing right now is going to stick for the long term. Yeah, I think those are all great examples where I would agree with you, right? They're going to, they're going to have a temporary purpose, but they're also going to just stay, right? They're going to become a new permanent norm. And, you know, I, I certainly am thinking that there's going to be a lot of institutions that just shift to a year round calendar. Right. Just like a lot of the uh, large online universities serving adult learners have done, they have constant, you know, uh, right. Uh, yeah. right. This idea that we we had a May 1st deadline and, you know, you enrolled right. in September. Right? You know, we know institutions have had multiple start dates. So why can't we bring that to the traditional undergrad as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, and so. You know, to what degree are, are we going to see, you know, some other interesting things pop up, right? Like universities shifting to uh, a menu of ways to do their degree, right? You can do it on campus, you can do it fully online, there might be some hybrid combination. Uh, I could see a lot of new, well, let's just call them products or options, right, that uh, that might arise from this, but that become semi-permanent too. And one of the, um, 
I'm curious your reaction on this one. This was a this was a prediction I made in a Forbes article that I wrote back in late November, uh, where I said admissions decisions are going to start to be made in 24 to 48 business hours. And the reason why I made that prediction was that that's largely what's happening in the international student enrollment market already, where the expectation among international students applying to foreign universities is that they hear pretty much right away whether they're in or not. And you know, once that becomes an expectation, it's kind of hard to be the university that takes three weeks to get back to you if most of them are getting back to you in two days. Do you think that might happen as well on a domestic enrollment front where you know, because there's rolling admissions periods and, and other things that, that the speed and turnaround will be really instant as well? Yeah, and I think that's going to be very true among what I, in my, my in the forthcoming book, uh, Who Gets In and Why, I call the buyers and sellers in, in, in higher education. And, and most institutions are buyers. In other words, they have to literally buy students to try to get them to, to campus where there's a very small uh, number of institutions who are the sellers. They have these, you know, name brands that are, uh, uh, you know, recognized around the world. And I think we're going to see, we're already seeing a growing divide in admissions between the haves and have-nots. And I think among among the bulk of uh, institutions, they're going to have to try new things. Uh, and, and this idea of rolling admissions and giving fast answers, much easier ways of applying, uh, different ways of marketing to students, uh, you know, all these things I think are going to come to the forefront. I will say, though, I think that the, you know, the Ivy Leagues and, the, you know, the, the wealthy elite selective universities are going to kind of continue to do what they've always done because they feel like, um, you know, they're protected from what, uh, you know, all these other activities that uh, other institutions uh, need to do. But for, you know, the vast majority of Americans, you know, they go to those 90% of institutions that are not the Ivy League. Um, and, and I think we're going to see those changes among those institutions. Yeah, yeah. And what, I mean, so a couple other, you know, questions that are coming in. Uh, what do you see in terms of the, you know, the potential role or, or you know, will we see large, uh, you know, like, the, the mega university uh, trend, is that going to continue? You know, the, the, the snooze of the world, the WGUs, the UMGCs, and, you know, I mean, are they, are they going to capture increasingly large percentages of traditional age students in this? Is that a probability? Um, I'm not sure about traditional age students, but I think that we're going to start to see new products come out as a, as a result of this, right? I, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, most traditional universities sell one idea of higher education, right? They sell a right. the two-year associate's degree. They sell the four-year bachelor's degree, mostly residential. Uh, you know, Southern New Hampshire, Western governors, Arizona State sold the, the idea of the online degree, but largely that went to, uh, you know, adult students. I now think at the undergraduate level, I think we're not going to see fully more, you know, a lot more growth in the online, fully online degrees among, you know, the 18 to 22-year-olds, but I think we're going to see a lot more variation in products, right? So that could be many more hybrid programs where they're possibly going online a little bit and, and going face-to-face. -face. I think we're gonna see a lot more in terms of the degrees and the credentials. Uh, you know, a shout out to you, uh, Brandon, for the work that you've done and the writing you've done on the, on the cred degree, right? This idea of a credential and a degree that's packaged together. I will tell you coming out of the economic fallout from this pandemic, you know, students already were going to college to get a job, right? That was their number one criteria. That's even going to be, they're going to double down on that coming out of this, uh, you know, recession, depression, whatever we're in. Um, and so uh, it's clear to me that 
kind of the job function of higher education is going to become more critical. And we all know that the traditional bachelor's degree, as we've long defined it in higher education, doesn't necessarily provide what students really need in the job market today. And so I think schools are really going to think about what other types of things can we be offering to those students in order to make them more attractive to employers. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the classic old, you know, return on investment argument, right? And there's a lot of ways to think about ROI in that, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the, the stuff I've been writing about, you know, there's a lot of evidence from students, prospective students and, and prospective parents, employers, right? That, that what, what people value most is relevance, right? I'll just use that as a big, as a big term, relevance, you know, the relevance of what I'm learning you know, being able to see how it applies to the real world, how it applies to a job, how it, you know, moves me forward towards that goal. And I, you know, I don't think, you know, it's like when I get in these conversations, I always feel like there's this tension between the, you know, the liberal arts or, you know, skill, you know, specific skill training or job preparation. And I really, I just, I continue to believe that that's a false argument. It's a false discussion where, you know, the perfect package would be a student who's getting a broad liberal arts education and also coming out with some really recognized hard skills, right? Like they can, they know Python, uh, where they can apply that to some data science, or they have a cybersecurity designation. And the, the one little tidbit that, that plays into this is that we did some survey research and asked people to think about who they might hire most out of this list of recent college graduates. And, you know, one was a bachelor's degree in English, one was a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. If you just put those two head to head, more people would pick the bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. But then the other option was uh, a graduate with a bachelor's degree in English and a designation as a certified ethical hacker. And by, by a mile, right, four times over the others, they would pick the English major with the certified ethical hacker. And what I think that says is that people still value liberal arts if they can see it combined with a sharpened uh, and specific skill set that employers value. So, you know, I've got a lot of hope that, uh, that, that both of these are valuable, right? The industry recognized credential, you know, in and of itself is enhanced by a bachelor's degree and a bachelor's degree is enhanced by, you know, industry credential or an internship or whatever it might be. Well, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that those those uh, liberal arts, kind of the basis of the liberal arts, those are skills. And those are skills that we all know that employers want. And to me, the coin of the realm here is really in the future. Uh, and I believe that probably now more coming out of this pandemic than ever before are skills. You know, do people have the skills? And that includes both those soft skills and those hard skills. And so it's going to matter less, I think, about where you go. It's going to matter less what you major in. And I think it, employers are going to want to know, do you have those skills? One thing that gives me hope, Brandon, coming out of this is that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, all these schools, both at the K through 12 level and at the higher ed level, you know, had to quickly pivot online. Uh, you know, you had students who kind of had to figure out not only what they were doing with their own educational futures, but for those students in college who had internships lined up and jobs lined up, you know, their whole world was upended. You know, and I'm impressed. I'm really impressed with, uh, you know, even my own two kids learning at home here and how they've been able to really kind of pivot themselves. And, you know, one of the biggest knocks, I think, on students, of, especially of this generation, was their inability to kind of navigate the ambiguity of the world, right? That they, and, you know, and I talked about this in my own talks in my last book, There Is Life After College, this, this ability, you know, they always had to be told what to do and when to do it. Um, and, and perhaps coming out of this, we might have more resilient students. 
you know, we might have people who are better problem solvers uh, because of this. Um, and so I'm, my, I'm hopeful that there may, that may be the silver lining of education in this pandemic is that people had to figure things out both at yeah. the educators level and the students. And because yeah. of that, we might be better learners going forward. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned students adapting, right, and, and becoming more resilient or creative and how they're doing their learning. Same thing with, with staff and faculty. You know, I talked to the Dean of Undergraduate Studies at Duke and Kunshan, and, you know, they were one of the first ones that was, you know, uh, the, the universities that transitioned online. And, you know, I said, well, what, what have you learned so far? And she just said, well, you know, a lot of the faculty and students have come up with really innovative new ideas for teaching and learning. And, and that not only translate into the new forced online environment, but are things that will translate back into the classroom, right? When and if that returns to, you know, some, you know, some level of what it was before. So I agree with you. I mean, I think it is, it is going to also force a lot of creativity with institutions at the institutional level to the points that you and I were talking about earlier, you know, new innovative products and unbundling of higher ed. And by the way, like, I don't think this is a, this is a bad thing. One of the other predictions I made was that, you know, higher education is going to see more growth in enrollments in non-degree programs than in degree programs. And as long as a higher ed institution understands that it has a valuable brand and that people see it as offering more than just an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, right? There's all kinds of really valuable short training in the form of certificates or industry credentials or whatever it might be that you know, they could have uh, very significant growth opportunities uh, from a revenue perspective, in addition to a mission and purpose perspective. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, do you, think, do you think higher ed will also really think about its role in, in that category? And then what changes might that force across things like how accreditors might change the way they think about certain things? I'm just curious, is this, does, does that come into play now? Yeah, I mean, we've all been talking about disruption in the higher education sector now, it seems, for a very long time. And, and what I think this is going to do is it going to accelerate that disruption. True, we are going to have, as my colleague Michael Horn on, on the Future You podcast talks all the time about the, you know, the number of closures and mergers we're going to have. And I, I can imagine that only accelerating in the next couple of years. But it's amazing to me what this also is going to force institutions who always wanted to do X, Y, or Z, they're going to now be able to do it, right? We even see this in online education, right? There was so much opposition at some places to online education. We now, it was now forced upon us, forced upon the faculty. I think some of them are, are really going to take what they're learning from this and it's going to stick for the, for the long term. And I think now, because institutions are going to have to learn how to not only survive, but thrive in this new environment, it is going to force uh, institutions kind of go back to their strategic plans, to go back to their visions, to go back to their mission, and going back to what you just said is they're going to they're going to have to decide instead of trying to be like the thousands of other institutions out there, we're going to start to move in a new direction. And I think you're going to start to see new classifications of institutions grow up as a result. And we're not going to have kind of you know everybody going after you know the the couple of million of of high school students that graduate every year, and instead more institutions going after those tens of millions of Americans. And then if you count everybody in the world who need upskilling, who need additional training, who need education, you know, that's a huge market. And I never understood why everybody was always going after that tiny slice right. high school students, which we knew, as we said earlier, is, is, is going down while we had this huge market out there. That's tough to serve. I get it, but it's just so much bigger. Uh, and even right. if you could take a piece of it, 
uh, I think you're going to be so much more successful than trying to go after those those two million high school students. Yeah, no, that's right. You know, and I, it, look, one of the other things we started talking about briefly before we, we went live was the the idea, the question of what are people paying for when they go to college? And now I am I am now registering this conversation back to the traditional age on campus residential student, right? Because we've seen stories where universities are, have been sued over the last few weeks uh, to get you know money back for tuition from students who are saying, hey, you aren't delivering on what you promised me. You know, you showed me a, a brochure with, you know, students on the on the quad and going to sporting events and being involved in extracurriculars and all that kind of stuff. And I want my money back. And the university is saying, well, you're still getting your education and your degree. You're still on your way to do it. So so let's let, I, I'd love your thought on, you know, what what are people what are people really paying for when they when they go to college and, you know, maybe start to think about, which is something I spent a lot of time doing in my days at Gallup. What are the real value drivers of college and what are the, some of the things that are just there, right? That like, you know, we could do without and no one would really, uh, you know, bother to ask for their money back if they went away. So I'm curious, what, what are they, what, what are we paying for right now? It's interesting, Brandon. I'm starting to think you listened to the conversation that my wife and I were having this morning over coffee. <laughs> we were talking about this very thing, and she's a lawyer in, in higher education, and, and she was talking about kind of the legal contracts, right, that, that, that students essentially are signing. And I said, it's all fine, but parents and students think they're buying what's in the marketing, right? She said, well, all this other stuff is marketing, right? They promise you, you know, the beautiful quads, the small classes, the professors who care about you. That's not a contract, that's marketing. And I said, but, but that's what people, that's what higher education has been selling um, for, for decades, right? Whenever you ask higher education leaders why college costs so much, they would talk about all those, as I will, I'll kind of classify them as amenities um, and, and including the academic amenities, you know, the small classes and so forth. Well, now all that's been stripped away the last couple of weeks, no, no wonder parents want money back. Um, so I think what, what this may force us, you know, we were talking about when we were going live, you know, what we kind of miss most and, you know, going out to dinner or different things like this. I think the same thing's going to happen in a microcosm in higher education. What yeah. really matters, what really matters to the face-to-face -face campus experience, because we all know a million things have been added to that campus experience over the last uh, couple of decades. We haven't taken much away. All that has increased the cost of, of, of higher education. I think what we're going to see after this is, okay, let's, you know, in the academic component, what really matters, right? What, right. what really matters to student engagement. We know that now, I think, from the online learning experiments of the last couple of weeks. But then in terms of this residential campus experience, not going to go away. But this might force us, because we might be testing this out, by the way, this fall of social distancing has to continue. Like, we, really, when do we need to bring students together? Because we know that matters in terms of the development of these soft skills we were talking about earlier. But what maybe some of this other stuff we don't need to do anymore. Right. Um, unless we could bring down the price of college, we might be able to even shorten it in some cases. So, I, you know, again, I, I think what's going to happen over the next six months could potentially have long-term good consequences for higher education. Positive yeah. ones. Well, I sure hope so, too. For those of you who are joining us uh, late, I'm uh, with Jeff Salingo, New York Times bestselling author. We're talking about college admissions and uh, both the, uh, the short-term impact of COVID and also what might be more long-term and permanent. Uh, it's great to see some uh, familiar faces on the feed. Jane Oates, how are you? Uh, Mark Prensky, Kevin Tyler, Sergio Costa, great to, great to have you all on. Um, 
So, Jeff, I let me, you know, I know you work with a lot of college presidents. You've you've dissected this issue in a number of different ways, right? You now are a college president, right? What uh, what do you say to students about the fall? What would be your message, right? Uh, you know, do you, do you, you know, how would you craft that? And um, and then what would be the one or two biggest things that you would be pushing your teams to consider? I mean, we've talked about several of these, but I. I want to kind of see what would be your uh, your first big moves as as President Salingo. Well, first of all, I do not want to be President Salingo <laughs> of any college or university. These are these are really tough. These are tough jobs in normal times. I think these are really hard jobs right now. But are, um, yeah. I think that you want to be positive yet realistic, right? Um, I think you have to say, you know, if you're a residential campus, that our intention is to try to open in the fall. I think you have to be, you know, you know, that's what people again are are paying for. But I also think you have to say, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, I think we have to lay out, there was a great message from the president of Carnegie Mellon that I uh, highly recommend that's public that uh, he has been putting, he put out the other day, you know, lay out the different scenarios uh, and, and, and be, people just want transparency and honesty right now. Um, they know you don't know what's gonna happen. They know you can't promise anything in May about what's gonna happen in September. So I would lay out those options. And I think among the options that institutions need to be considering are some of the ones we talked about earlier. Low residency, uh, kind of a, a, a hybrid face-to-face -face online, uh, an online option for those students, by the way, who don't feel comfortable or can't. I mean, one of the things that probably most college and universities don't know is really how many people are compromised in a way that they don't, uh, health-wise, either for themselves or their families, can't really come back to campus in the fall. We don't really know that. Um, so you want to offer these different options for students, um, I think, in the, in the fall. And you want to be more flexible on those students who just want to take the year off or, or delay right. it. Uh, and I think the institutions that are most flexible, we're, we're going to remember this, by the way, I keep telling people, mm. we're going to remember the institutions that did right by students, the statements that presidents made, right, or didn't make uh, in, in this period. We're, we may never have a rankings of the best institutions that acted the best during this pandemic, but people are people have long memories in higher ed and they're going to remember that. And that is going to have an impact on where students go on where faculty want to work, and I think on the overall uh, impact of those institutions uh, going forward, then, just in terms of their, you know, financial health and, and their sustainability. Yeah, that's that's well said, Jeff. I, I'm reminded too. Folks want to check this out. Uh, the the director of admissions at Bowdoin wrote an incredible uh, note to their uh, incoming class uh, that that had a blend of all that. Right? It was truthful and honest and optimistic and. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll share the link on this, uh, on this feed later, but it's a brilliant, brilliant piece. They posted it publicly on the Bowdoin website. It was kind of a letter to the incoming class and, uh, definitely point everybody to it. But, uh, so Jeff, I have to ask, you know, you, um, you've been spending this whole year writing a book on college admissions. It's due out, you know, pretty much tomorrow in book publishing time. Uh, how much has the book been rewritten or, uh, or potentially changed by what's happened here over the last month or two? Well, Brandon, uh, even though we're living in 2020, book publishing is like in 1920. <laughs> uh, it just, it's a long time. I, I just reviewed uh, the pages. You know, the words are actually on, on pages now, uh, you know, ready to go to the printer, even though it doesn't come out till September 15th. Uh, so because of that, it's really hard to make major changes. I made some minor changes to the book, but we are adding a preface uh, to the book to deal with COVID that I have to write 
now in the next two weeks. So I would love the <laughs> listeners on here uh, in the comments and I'll look at them later. Uh, you know, what should I write that's going to be relevant? I mean, the problem now is I have to write something on May 15th that's going to be relevant on September 15th. Um, and so that's my challenge in the next couple of weeks. So I would love to hear from your viewers and listeners, you know, what are the things I should focus on uh, uh, around admissions and around higher education that, that will have kind of staying power uh, over the next uh, couple of months? Yeah, that's a great call to action. Everybody who's tuned in. So uh, by all means, feel free to share those comments. And uh, Jeff and I will both make sure that those are, uh, those are shared for his, uh, his pending deadline here in the update. So Jeff, we did get another question. It was a good one. Um, what, it was asked to both of us, what would we recommend as one of our favorite books, uh, higher ed books to read? Um, and uh, I, I know other than your books, right, uh, which would be my number one recommendation, what would you say is one of your uh, one of your most recommended books for uh, for the listeners to uh, check out if they haven't already? Okay, there's a there's a million great books on higher ed. I, I, there's two I want to recommend. One is uh, coming out from uh, somebody I work with closely at Arizona State, and that we both know, Michael Crow, uh, writing a book on the fifth wave of higher education, which I think is going to be very relevant. It's kind of the new class of institutions that are uh, are going to arise in higher education, much like after the American Civil War uh, with the land grant colleges. So, I highly recommend that coming out from Johns Hopkins Press. I'm actually going to, I'm going to recommend what I would call a desk reference. Um, and that's John Thielen's book on the history of higher education in the U.S. Um, I don't have the exact title, uh, but John is a, is a professor at the University of Kentucky. And I will tell you, I keep that book on my desk. I'm not sure I ever read it, I will be honest, from you know, beginning to end. But it is um, one of the best books on the history of higher education in the US and it, it talks about residential colleges, the colonial colleges, the land grant movement, World War II, everything. And the reason I recommend that is because for almost anything that happens, you know, we're all, we're all students of history. There's always been something else similar to it that has happened in the past. And we have to remember that, especially right now, right? We all think, you know, I, the, probably the favorite word I've seen over the last couple of weeks is unprecedented. This is unprecedented in higher education and yes, at the scale it's happening, perhaps it's unprecedented, but there have been major disruptions to our higher education system many times throughout history, including that period, by the way, before the American Civil War. And the reason I recommend that book is that I like to go back once in a while to remind myself that there is precedence for a lot of this stuff in, in higher ed. And we have to kind of remember that and ground ourselves in it. That's a, that's a great one. I, I'm, I'm going to pick that one up myself and I'll throw a wild card in there, you know, because it's not necessarily a book about higher ed. But um, if you want to kind of rethink uh, the assumptions about human beings and our history and our past, uh, the book Sapiens uh, was one of the most, uh, you know, kind of provocative books I've read. And it was so provocative that I read the follow up book, Homo Deus, uh, which is really about the future of humankind. And you know, you'll, you'll certainly, I mean, it'll stretch your brain in ways that have never been stretched before. And I think it'll also bring a lot of ideas to help us rethink uh, what we believe, right? See it in new ways and also see all kinds of fascinating possibilities. Some scary, some very exciting, but um, those two books were, were game changers for me in the last year. So I'll throw, I'll throw those in the mix. But uh, Jeff, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, listeners, it's been great to have you here. And uh, we'll look forward to connecting again soon here. And please send some ideas to Jeff. He, uh, he's under deadline. Thanks, Brandon. It was great to be with you and all the viewers on, uh, on LinkedIn today. And, uh, and thanks, everybody. And, and stay safe and stay strong.